Hello and welcome to Books and Badger. This is season three, episode two, and we're covering book two of Matameo, General Ironbeak. But before we get to that, I got to do the introduction. As always, I'm your co-host, Colin, and with me is Trevor, the uh, the Matthias to my Orlando. <laughs> I can dig that. <laughs> How's it going, Trevor? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. As we kind of talked prior to recording, uh, we're just uh, trying to recover from some sickness in the family. So I'm feeling good. Family's feeling good. So I think we're on the right track. Yeah, it's it's good to be in good health for sure. <laughs> yeah, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate uh, health when you're healthy for sure. <laughs> and then you miss it when you're unhealthy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so that that's really consumed most of my life. I I've drank a lot of tea <laughs> from being <laughs> sick. Uh, so I guess my my first question to you: like, what's what's your go to tea? Are you a black tea guy or a green tea guy? Yeah, definitely a black tea guy. Uh, I <laughs> lately I've been on a kick of just like the most basic generic Lipton black tea. I it's just you know, just whatever the Lipton brand is. That's (laughs) actually what I'm drinking right now. But I also really like basically anything Earl Grey. I really like the citrusy notes in something like an Earl Grey blend. I'm also really into green tea with ginger. That's a fabulous steeping. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm I'm a big green tea guy. I like all those. Um, exotic green teas they're they're the best um what's a good what's a good pairing for your your tea you got any um books that you've been reading or um in the hopper i've always got some kind of book or another that i've been going through i feel like right now i really want to be on a sci-fi kick but my reading for the podcast has been not so sci-fi so i have like <laughs> four or five different sci-fi books that i really want to get to i did finish a novelette last night about dengar the bounty hunter from star wars and it Ooh. was it was surprisingly good it was written by dave wolverton it shows up in the tales of the bounty hunter book that was edited by kevin j anderson in 1996 um, it's such a weird kind of little collection of novelettes about the bounty hunters that you see in the one scene in Empire Strikes Back when all of the bounty hunters are going after Han Solo. Uh, but that was a really, really good read. I I was surprised by it. Um, lately, as we get into the holiday season, I read Brian McCauley's Candy Cane Kills, which is a novella from Shortwave. It's a Christmas slasher, and <laughs> it pairs perfectly with peppermint. Uh, peppermint Ooh. tea, for sure. Yeah, what a what a great pairing. We're gonna have to keep this going forward in the future. Of what's the book and what's the the tea flavor to go with that? Uh, sorry for all the coffee drinkers out there. Um, I don't know enough about coffee to give any <laughs> kind of like pairing. So, yeah, we'll just have to stick with the tea. Um, but we're we're not going to be sticking for tea for too long because we have so much to cover in this uh, book to General Iron Beak. What do you say, Trevor? Should we jump into it? I think we should. Let's do it. 
two, General Ironbeak begins with chapter 26, where the Gaussim debate going with Matthias. Logalog takes up the majority vote, but a small opposition faction led by a shrew named Scan vote to break from Logalog and the other Gaussim. Meanwhile, just a little further south, Slagar signals to hidden allies to climb the great cliffs bordering southern Mossflower. Yeah, so where we picked off on, uh, what is it, book one, um, mm -hmm. we kind of learned that uh, Logalog is uh, campaigning, I guess is the best way to say, but we get, a, <laughs> we get some deeper in-depth look at to what the issue is. And it's really this rogue group, right? They, they don't want to be... Um, necessarily um, adhering to some of the shrew ways of, of the Gaussum, specifically the speaking stone. Uh, and they're very poignant to talk about the, the freedom that they would be able to have um, if Scan was Logalog. What do you think about that, Trev? It's a really interesting little wrinkle. We always knew that the Gaussum were kind of quarrelous by nature. That was definitely a feature in the very first Redwall book. So I think it's great that Brian Jakes revisits, revisits that idea here and then kind of brings us into this political moment with Logalog. It creates a little bit of friction for a secondary character that I think you and I both love um, and gives Logalog just a little bit more presence in these opening chapters to General Ironbeak. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of setting the stage a little bit. And and you're right, I love Scan, um, but for different reasons. I don't really love him as a character, but we'll get into that when we get into it, because I, I think that that's the thing I'm the most excited to talk about in this book. Um, so we'll, we'll jump into that when we get to it. In Chapter 27, General Ironbeak, a raven from the north, plots with his Corvus allies to assault Redwall shortly after Warbeak and the other sparrows leave the abbey on their search for Matthias. Slagar finishes climbing the southern wall with his slaves and confirms with Stonefleck, a rat guarding the rope ladders that give access to the cliffs. Scan catches up to Slagar in the hopes of betraying Logalog and the Mosslar co coalition chasing Slagar. But instead of joining forces with Scan's defenders, Slagar imprisons them on his slave line. Oh, man, I have so much to say about this chapter. Uh, lots, lots to cover here. The first I have to ask you, Trevor, is Stonefleck a shadow trope? I immediately went to Stonefleck and whether or not he was a shadow trope. Because he has this weird, unique power, which is like this natural camouflage with the stonework of this, you know, kind of south of the border um, kind of area. We're almost in like the badlands of Mossflower country. Uh, I don't think it's technically qualified as Mossflower anymore. Um, and it's really interesting to start getting into this kind of southern topography and how different it is from Mossflower Wood, which we know so well, and even some of the other areas of the world, like the west where uh, Salamandastron is. 
so I I found Stonefleck to be a really interesting kind of character uh, in that he has the same kind of trope, but I don't actually think that he qualifies as a shadow trope. And the only reason I say that is because Stonefleck is way more present in book two than mm-hmm. someone like Shadow was. Yeah, I agree. I think his presence on the page disqualifies him from being a shadow trope. Um, we kind of learned this later, but um, the group that Stonefleck is working with also have that same kind of striped pattern that gives them that unnatural um, uh, camouflage. So, or I guess natural camouflage, you know, they blend in. What is the better way to say it? Um, but yeah, I immediately thought of that. So I, I'm glad we got it out of the way. Um, and I want to talk about scan. This is such a, a subversion to what we see with uh, Vich, what we see um, Jake's kind of already do. And I love it so much because um, the betrayal that um, of being imprisoned and enslaved by Slagar shows both Slagar's cleverness and ruthlessness as like a character. Like it's a good character moment for him but it also just shows the naivety of scan like he clearly he he messes up so quickly and he tries to call slagar out on it saying like hey i'm here to betray them and he's like yeah and you'll do it to me too so get in line and so he he takes him in as a slave (laughs) i think that scan is such an interesting little fold in you know, this good, bad kind of dichotomy. Because we know Shrews to be allied with Redwall. We know Shrews to be, quote unquote, good characters. So this is one way in which I think Jake's kind of plays with our expectations, you know, kind of subverts them by giving us a character who should be good, but is actually bad. Yeah, to your point, I also think that it's just great that Slagar just sees him for what he is. (laughs) And this is another, you know, kind of like aspect of Slagar's villainy where he just knows how to sniff out BS. And so he throws Scan and those that came with him on his slave line. Um, And I, I think that just cements for me just how, you know, villainous Slagar really is. And how you can't really outfox a fox. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's a great way to say it. And and I think it's a, a great point to make. Like, um, I didn't really think about his nature, kind of be- betraying his nature as a shrew. Um, but we quickly see that he's really not a fire, fighter either. His, his bark is definitely louder than his bite. Um, and, and that's what ends him up in the slave line. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also pretty curious because... Uh, his kind of cowardice, if you will, the fact that, you know, he doesn't even really confront Logalog. Um, he just kind of bounces and goes off to do his other, his own thing, um, as if he needs to gather up some more military power to, to confront Logalog. Um, I, I find that to be, you know, both interesting for Logalog's character because it kind of sets him up as like, this dude kind of knows what he's doing. Um, and is a much more competent leader, I think even more competent than in Redwall in some ways. Um, but it also kind of shows that when it comes to Jake's characters, there is a common thread where 
those who would do ill or those who would do bad are ultimately cowards when confronted with righteous force. And, uh, and I think that's one of the reasons why scan, you know, kind of runs off to try to, to bolster his forces somewhere else. And it's just unfortunate for him that he chooses the wrong person to try to approach. Yeah. And Matthias even brings that up. Um, I, I don't remember if it's cheek or if it's, um, I don't remember, or maybe it's Orlando that says, um, that kind of talks about how, um, scan is bigger than, than Logalog. Um, he's, he's younger, he's stronger. Um, but Matthias kind of stands up for Logalog saying like, he's a fierce fighter. Like he's, there's more to him than just his size that would makes him a formidable foe. Um, and that's the complete opposite of scan. Like he would rather go and, um, basically try to someone else do the fighting for him in order, you know, then, then stand up to Logalog. Um, I think it's also kind of interesting that Orlando steps in, um, ready to, basically cleave scan when he when this conflict happens and um i think it's matthias talks him down saying hey you know like they can resolve it among themselves like this is kind of what shrews do um but dude orlando's like got no chill (laughs) he he does not he does not have time for these games i i love orlando's like (laughs) chop first ask questions later uh but i also like that you know, Matthias has so much experience with the shrews, having dealt with him in his previous adventures, that he's like, no, 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 no. Let them figure it out. It's going to be okay. They'll they'll work it out for themselves. Yeah, I haven't said this yet, but I um, I texted you as I was reading this, and I said I really like Matthias in this um, this book too because I think that we see a lot of growth in him. Um, he's way less hot headed. Um, in this second book than he is in the first one. I mean, he ran right into a cave, into like a trap. But here he's a lot more methodical as to what he's doing. And and, um, he kind of takes on the role of a commander more, which um, I think is great. I I really love to see him progressing more than just this fighter figure, but instead being more of um, a leader. Yeah, there are a couple of chapters coming up in the book that I think are probably my favorite representation of Matthias and, and really like where Matthias is um, in his journey. I do want to pause for just a second here before we transition into chapter 29 to talk a little bit about this scene in chapter 28 with the painted ones. Does that happen in this chapter? I kind of forgot. If it's in, in chapter or... 28, yeah. Uh, Slagar's slave line uh, is trying to make their way through the woods and they are attacked by the painted ones. Oh, yes. Yes. Um, well, you being the foremost expert on horror, I think you should talk about it first. <laughs> I, oh, man. I absolutely love the horror elements in this book. And I know that when we talk to William in our big book wrap up, he's going to have some very similar thoughts. Um, This whole book is a whole lot more horror heavy than I think any of the previous two books have been. There's weird body horror with Slagar and his disfigurement. And then 
we get to these southern lands and the, there's this there's a cult <laughs> you know of Malchorus hanging out out here somewhere underground and there's this passage through this pine forest that is absolutely terrifying as they head in jake's kind of sets up an uneasiness like all of the creatures kind of know that there's something wrong there are corpses and skeletons hanging from these pine trees for seemingly no reason and then as they even get through the forest they're attacked and jake's does not really give us a good picture of what it is that is attacking this slave line, but Scan dies, and a Scan couple of gets he gets lifted up in the air. He gets taken yeah. in the air, and then his dead corpse um, is basically just dead weight in the chain. That Alma yeah. has to pick him up to drag him out. His dead corpse. I couldn't yeah. believe what I was reading during that time. <laughs> it's, it's horrifying. It's so wild. And I, I think that's one of the things that I love about it so much is Jake's is really economic with what it is that they're they're facing. He's very much not interested in just giving you plain answers to what it is. And I think that heightens a lot of the terror because as much as the slave, the slave line and slag arm makes it through, if they, they accumulate, you know, a couple of dead along the way. They kind of pay the price. And then we know that Matthias and his company is going to have to pass through there at some point, too. And that's equally yeah. terrifying. And Slagger has a plan to get through this because he knows that this is part of the journey to get them to Malchorus. And so he knows the plan. The plan is to stay silent and run for the clearing if something bad happens. And so when something bad does happen, we we see that the painted ones, which we still kind of don't know what they are, um, they are able to, uh, you know, pick off the slaves in the line like scan. But then we also learn they're strong enough to um, wound a small badger. I mean, Alma gets her back slashed to bits um, to the point where I mean, she's she's able to continue, but she's definitely wounded, right? Like she's yeah, she takes she takes a, a flesh wound from it. Um, I texted you during this after this chapter and I said, what the heck was that? It's so out <laughs> of place. Um, I couldn't remember what chapter it was in either, but it's so out of place and is genuinely uh, bone chilling, like the introduction of the the corpse that's kind of hanging as bait here. We mm. we don't know who, you know, what's going on. Um, yeah, there's I, I can't wait to talk about this as as larger groups. So I'm, I'm sure we'll spend way more time kind of dissecting the craft of this. But I really have to mm. applaud Jake's on how well he writes this sequence and the sequence that we see a little bit later um, with Matthias and co as I kind of go yeah. through it. But um, yeah, it's, it's generally spooky. I think this is the most scared I've been in, in all three books. Oh, absolutely. I, I feel the same way. I think that Asmodeus has all of the hallmarks of terror. Like I really love that chapter where Gaussim and Logalog and Matthias are kind of approaching Asmodeus's chamber and then Gaussim falls in and Matthias is kind of hunting through trying to find Asmodeus and where the sword is. Uh, that's some really effective horror, but I think that Jake's kind of returns to that sense of tension, that sense of uh, 
just spooky atmospheric energy here. Um, it's one of my favorite chapters, you know, in any of these books so far. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that the big difference between Asmodeus and this, though, is that we know what Asmodeus is. Mm -hmm. Like We know the threat that's there. We still don't know who these are, what the painted ones are. So um, I'm glad that you you paused us to talk about it, because I think that's another big part of the conversation with this this um, book, too. So I'm, I'm glad we were able to do that. Yeah. Horror seems to be much more a presence in book two. And, and I just think that the trick to Malchorus itself, uh, horror plays a pretty big role. In chapter 28, General Ironbeak enters the abbey through the abandoned Sparrow Kingdom, slaying all of the old and young that did not join Warbeak's search party. Now inside the abbey, the Corvids begin their reign of terror, with their first victim being Baby Rollo. Meanwhile, Matthias and his company puzzle how to ascend the southern cliffs while Slagar's slave line has a deadly encounter with the pointed ones in the woods beyond the cliff. Yeah, so uh, General Ironbeak, I think... I think this is a really good introduction to General Ironbeak. Um, but yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts kind of on this this uh, 28. Well, there's one thing that really stood out to me, but um, yeah, I'd like to hear your thoughts first. I think that the introduction to General Ironbeak is a, a little surprising. It's pretty late in the book by this point. I mean, we're talking about something that's a little over a third of the way in. I, I think it's closer to like 40% of the book. So to introduce a secondary villain this late uh, is just a little surprising. You know, we have kind of these secondary villains, if you will, in the other books like Asmodeus. We have figures like uh, Bane who show up really late in Mossflower. But it is a little bit surprising to all of a sudden have this new uh, enemy kind of show up just as things are kind of picking up with Matthias's track. So I felt like the inclusion of General Ironbeak kind of threw me off guard just a little bit. I did not remember any of this from my first reading at all. But I also think that General Ironbeak is a pretty solid villain. He seems to be pretty uh, intelligent. He's got some interesting secondary characters around him. You know, um, I think Mangus is his seer, and that is an introduction again to kind of this prophetic magic that runs through this world. And I find that to be really interesting too. And the kind of mystical quality that Redwall has as it tends to warp, you know, the, the kind of prophecy, uh, that flows through whatever this this world of moss flower is yeah definitely and i'm glad you brought up mangiz or i don't know how to say his, his name i didn't look that one up but um because general Ironbeak kind of has this um order right where there there are other um ravens that are part of his order but they're warriors so they're they're focused on basically being warriors but then he also kind of has this group of 
magpies that are supporting him. And then he has this prophetic seer, Mangiz, who is per, who's basically an advisor telling General Ironbeak that um, the opportunity, the, the prophetic um, window for them to be able to take over Redwall has now opened and this is, you know, they need to seize the opportunity. So I think it's really interesting kind of comparing Ironbeak to what we saw with Mad uh, uh, Bull Sparrow in the first book is that, mm. you know, his motivation is really a lot more like calculated, but then it's, it follows this mysticism of the seer, right? So it's, it's, um, it's really cool to see this prophetic soft magic, as you kind of said, um, introduced back into this storyline, but I, I'm, I'm where you are, where it just seems like he comes out of nowhere, <laughs> like this introduction so late, um, not really knowing exactly what the stakes are, does feel a little forced. Um, I think that he's an interesting character and I'm, I, and as we read more about him and what's going on at the Abbey, uh, which we'll get into in the, in the next chapter, I'm, I find myself way more invested in that story um mm. more so than you know kind of comparing it to uh, redwall the mm. first book kind of comparing it to the defense of the abbey this seems like a a um there's a real threat with him there i guess i'll say so in chapter 29 sister may bravely saves rollo from general ironbeak and a quick skirmish occurs between constance and the corvids after a sudden stalemate, the Red Wallers hold up or hole up in Cavern Hole and discuss mounting a defense against the intruders. Meanwhile, Matthias is introduced to Sir Harry the Muse, a brown owl who assists the rescuing party in climbing the southern cliffs to the plateau above. One thing that I love about this chapter is how... Um brutal sister may is in this defense of rollo that she grabs general ironbeak by the talon and starts biting him she bites him mm -hmm. until rollo's released um talking about horror too this is another kind of horror trope maybe uh, you know horror better than i do where we see rollo is just having a uh, heck of a time he is loving you know kind of <laughs> running around and being crazy and trying to escape a bath you know like he's just having a, a, a good time but then we have this enemy who's lurking in the shadows that springs out and captures him so it's a really good tense moment kind of building off of what we just read in the previous chapter but then it's really cool to see sister may um have this this moment that she reflects on later being like i don't know it came over me like you guys are giving me too much credit when they're talking in cavern hole saying like whoa you like you know you saved him you're you're the hero um trying to explain why this uh, very gentle um abbess <laughs> i don't know what you call her um is now you know uh, drawing blood from uh, a raven general <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Sister May is uh, kind of a fun character because she, she runs the infirmary, I believe. Um, so to, yeah. to kind of mm -hmm. see her motherly instinct uh, as she just like leaps to Rollo's defense is uh, really great. I, I think you're right too. I, I think a lot about the Corvids in this whole book and their kind of uh, villainous presence I do think they have some of that tinge of horror. I mean, they've invaded the Abbey, so they're already in 
what should be the safe space. And the way that this attack is kind of described is that they just kind of appear out of nowhere and they're, they're so dark in, in their coloring, you know, in their feathering that they can't easily be seen. And so when they actually do discover, you know, kind of who's there, um, they discover that it's like multiple corvids at once, you know, um, and they, they, these corvids have a, a way of kind of sneaking about the abbey, even though the fact that, you know, a, a raven is a pretty big bird, if you think about it. Um, I know that we struggle with like kind of the aspect of scale, like how do these mice kind of shape up against uh, a raven or a magpie or something like that. But I think that these are intended to be pretty big threats in comparison to the rest of the red wallers. Yeah. And they're a lot bigger than the sparrows. I think that's the big thing that we're supposed to learn too, is that when they, in the previous chapter, when they come in and they kill all the sparrows, um, the elderly and the ones that are left that didn't go with, with queen Warbeak, um, you know, they're, they're really, uh, a lot more formidable uh, to your point than, than what we would expect, even when the sparrows were present there. Um, one thing I don't think we mentioned in the previous chapter too, but we learn that, um, their seer cannot see within the it within Redwall because um Martin is basically blocking any foresight, which is this mm. cr- another um uh, aspect of this kind of um uh the soft magic that's around the the prophecy where he's acting as a defender of this <laughs> I don't know what you call it. Like we don't even we don't really have a, a thing to call it besides the foresight, right? Or this yeah. this prophecy. So I think that's a really cool aspect to see is that um, we have this mysticism that's going on with yeah. the, within the Abbey walls. But then we also see that the Red Wallers are not going to um, allow this invasion to happen. And um, the the Corvids, the, the Ravens quickly learn that um, Constance is the, the biggest obstacle for them taking this thing over because she absolutely batters the, the crap out of them. Um, there's so many really cool aspects of what's happening with General Ironbeak that even though his introduction seems so random, man, I, I gotta say I love I love the dynamic of of what's going on. I really love to see this stalemate kind of develop and love to see the the wood woodlanders the the Redwallers kind of push back. It, it's very very cool. The even though I think General Ironbeak comes in so late in the book. I really did find myself like the more the book developed, the, the more I was invested in what was happening with Redwall. Of course, I want to know what happens with Slagar and and this whole chase, but I really did feel a strong sense of tension back at Redwall. And I think that in comparison to, you know, kind of the hunting around for the prophecy from Abbess Germain about Martin's quest or, or not Martin's quest, Matthias's quest. Um, I, I find myself a, a lot more invested in general Ironbeak and his invasion of the Abbey than I was with a lot of the, the search for this prophecy. Yeah. I can't help but feel like the whole um, discovering Abbess Germain was only to get the sparrows out of the, out of Redwall. 
I, I really don't think that there that serves any other plot point besides that. Yeah. So that this this whole thing can kind of happen. I think you're you're probably you're probably right. Um, and and also just to give the Red Wallers, you know, kind of something to do, so that you know you're not just following around Matthias. I think it's interesting that you think that the sword or the the mouse in armor is Martin, though, um, because I you think it's Matthias. I totally thought it was Matthias. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, I think I think it's Martin. I think it's the the same Martin that talked to um uh. Mordalphus when he was like, I don't know what to do next. I think it's all coming from the pat the, the tapestry. Yeah. Um, or I, I kind of thought maybe it's coming from his tomb, but I don't know. It it's entirely possible that it's any one of these things. I, I don't know if we'll get an answer. I kind of suspect we might get an answer toward the end of the book as to who this mouse is, but it could totally be Martin. And we know that Martin or the spirit of Martin has been passed on into Matthias anyway. Like the, the two of them are kind of, yeah, the they're kind of one and the same. Yeah. The, the Matthias is the reincarnation of, of Martin. We've established that from, from Redwall. Uh, I, I do love his presence though, as kind of this like mystical figure who just kind of shows up, whether he be the spirit of Redwall in a, as a metaphor or, you know, kind of more, a literal magical kind of presence that opposes, you know, these like other magical or mystical creatures. Uh, it's a really cool wrinkle in the story. Yeah. You can bet that I'm going to be tracking this throughout other books too, because <laughs> I think it's, I think it's so cool to see this kind of repeating soft magic throughout. This is what we keep calling it throughout the books. Um, yeah, I, I'm really excited to talk or to kind of track it through through other books. Yeah. So we've established that Jake's likes to introduce random birds at the most random times. <laughs> and I can't help but feel like that sums up Sir Harry the Muse. I had to read back because I was like, why? What, where, where did this guy come from? He literally just descends on the group and is like, hey, what's up? Right. Like, yeah, there's OK. I was like, maybe I missed something here. Um. I think that this is a fun way to show, you know, the uh, Jake's to kind of flex his uh, poetry side, his poetic side, I suppose. Um, My only note for this is that the a line that genuinely made me chuckle was when Basil tries to uh, also um, poise himself as a poet (laughs) for Sir Harry the Muse and he shuts him down. It's brilliant. (laughs) Yes. It's funny because Basil and Matthias both take their hand at it and sir harry kind of recognizes matthias he's like all right that wasn't too bad and then like a for effort kind of a thing (laughs) and then he looks at basil and he's like like you just gave me the equivalent of a limerick like it just yeah he he tells him to just keep being a hare that's don't quit your day job is really what he says (laughs) yeah don't don't quit your day job yeah um I I personally love Sir Harry. I, I think he's a he's just a weird little dude who sh- kind of shows up. Um, again, I I have no memory of him ever existing from my first read through of this book. Oh, so I forgot about him. And when I mean, he shows up again later. I literally forgot about him. And then he shows up again. I was like, oh, it's it's this guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's back. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I think it's also really funny that. Sir Harry the Muse drops his um, his rhyming scheme, his poetic scheme when they're talking about like 
the transaction, the food <laughs> transaction. And he's like, we're talking business. There's no time for this. And it's so funny when he picks <laughs> it back up. <laughs> I wonder if Jake's did that more intentionally as like just a, a character study thing, or if he was just like, I don't know, I don't want to keep writing poetry for this guy. <laughs> like, you know, kind of setting himself <laughs> up. Yeah, he probably kind of wrote himself in the corner a little bit. But this is such a needed relief to the tension and the the horror, the kind of the terror that's been building through these last two chapters that I find find myself um, just really enjoying this little section and laughing with it and just like kind of taking a respite in it. And then I, for, you know, we get to the next chapter. I'm like, oh, shoot, I forgot that all this scary stuff is happening. <laughs> um, it's it's very I got to say it's a, it's a very good inclusion. Um, although it's completely random that he shows up. Yeah, I get major Chib vibes from Sir Harry the Muse. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up because I had that in my notes too. Is I was like, this is just like Chib's great-grandfather, right? I mean, he's an owl, so it doesn't work out, but um, he just is, he's just like Chib's, a, a, a Chib's that rhymes, essentially. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty fun. Well, in Chapter 30, back at Redwall, General Ironbeak confronts the Redwallers. The Corvids announce their intentions to take the Abbey, and the Redwallers meet the challenge by mounting a formidable defense. Meanwhile, Matthias and his company cross into the dark woods south of the cliffs, with a near-costly encounter with the Painted Ones. Quick thinking from Jess and Logalog secures their safe passage through the woods, where Stonefleck and Slagar are able to observe them and plan for a major battle. Back at Redwall once again, the Corvids manage to kidnap Cornflower, Mrs. Churchmouse, and Rollo. So for this chapter, I don't really have a lot of contribution of what's going on with General Ironbeak and the Redwallers. It's kind of just setting the stage for the uh, what's the next chapter, which is kind of, um, I don't know, not, not really the climax, but it... I don't really have a whole lot to contribute here. I want to spend as much time as possible with the painted ones because this whole scene of what happens um, is is for for my case study as to why Matthias um, ha- is a better warrior now than he was in Redwall because they don't know anything that Slagar knows going into this forest. They don't know that the painted ones are there. He has the intuition that something is going on and he sees the corpses in the forest and says, he basically says like, we need to be on high alert, but they don't know what's happening. And then we get to see how formidable they are as warriors when the spring is trapped, you know, the, the kind of spring, uh, the trap is sprung um, and all the painted ones kind of come out and they have this, um, this, I don't know, rabid battle in the forest. I don't know how <laughs> you describe wild. it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they, they, they just, they completely get overwhelmed. But then we also see that both Matthias and Orlando are like basically back to back fending out all these painted ones as they come across. Jess is, you know, up in the trees. She sees the opportunity to seize their leader. And then in doing so, they tried to exchange a trade, right? They say, okay, we need to trade. If you give me your, uh, if you give me, um, oh, who is it that's captured? It's Cheek, right? It's Cheek. Yeah. Cheek. Yes. Uh, he, Cheek basically gets lassoed um, by like a noose and it's just hoisted up into the air. 
I generally thought Cheek was going to die. I'm not even kidding. I was like, <laughs> okay, well, that was nice that Cheek was with us because of what we saw with Scan, right? Like, um, I, I think it's so interesting that, uh, like, I I thought the same thing. I was like, oh no, is Cheek going to eat it? Because we know that, like, some characters mm-hmm. just, you know, like they they don't make it to the end sometimes. Yeah, yeah, I I genuinely thought that the plot armor was going to fail with with Cheek 100%. I was like, okay, well, he's going to die. I also thought it was really cool to see Basil frantically try to get Cheek back. Like, um, you know, we know that Basil's a good warrior, but we we see his his extended efforts. Well, I guess it's more of a team effort to try to get him back, but just, you know, identifies the commander or or the leader i guess as however we want to define it and then they they kind of structure this trade um through nods and movements because they can't really talk to the painted ones but then matthias sees very clearly this isn't actually going to be a way out which is why i think that he's he's kind of he's kind of leveled up as a leader because he sees like okay this is only going to buy us a very momentary time we need to do something in order to get out quicker which he devises this plan in order to light uh it's to light the um the the amber or the uh, the resin from the trees to create a you know a torch and then they would pass the torch among each other in order to then drive through the forest because they kind of um figure out that they are afraid of the fire i think this is a a brilliant execution from matthias to happen so quickly and i know you could probably just like argue like well you know jakes is kind of giving matthias this information as the main character to then be able to be the leader but i don't think that matthias ever thought like this in the first red wall like he was never this Mm -hmm. clever on his feet in order to to kind of do these things um it's it was so cool to see and this chapter is genuinely tense right like it just feels it feels (laughs) tense yeah, I totally agree with you. I I think there are so many things about this confrontation that I love. You know, first off, Orlando just going ham. I'm always going to be down for Orlando just getting into a fight. Um, I also think that like he and Matthias prove to be really capable warriors. But hands to Jess, I I think this whole fight yeah. would have gone down so much differently if they didn't have Jess with them. And Jess is not only the one who kind of pinpoints the, you know, where the leader is, she's also the one to realize what these painted, uh, the painted ones are. And she kind of calls them out that they are cannibals, essentially. Like, like, yeah, that is, you know, kind of the, the society that the, the monstrous society that they walk into. Crowning it, I, I think like a scenery or, or crowning achievement of this chapter is Matthias relinquishing the sword to Jess because Jess is like, I need that right now. And oh, dude, I completely forgot about that. I yeah. completely forgot about that point. Yeah, man. Yeah. Matthias passes along the sword uh, to Jess and Jess uses it, you know, like, like as the, the tool she needs in order to get this exchange made, you know, the, a life for a life, you know, give us back cheek and we'll give you your leader um, and then get out of here. And it's Logalog who figures out the fire thing, right? Like Logalog's the one who, who figures out the torch. Um, But, but all of these things happen, you know, kind of like in a, a, a sequence together. And I think that what, 
is what makes Matthias's party such an interesting party or such a compelling, you know, kind of uh, uh, party to follow. They're very competent in all of their roles. And I think that, I, I don't know. I feel like for me, Matthias would never have given up his sword to Jess in the previous book. Like, I don't think he had that yeah. wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. And you're correcting me on a lot of the details that I got wrong. And it's very possible. I mean, I, I will admit it's very possible that I got those details wrong purely because I'm so focused on like Matthias, you know, thinking that he's like, you know, leveling up a little bit. Um, so apologies for, for getting those wrong, but I think you're right. Like I, I, I'm glad that we're at least in agreement in the fact that it seems like this Matthias, I, I like this Matthias more than the Matthias in Redwall. I really do. He seems like he has a lot more dimension to him in the decisions that he makes. I like that he does, or sorry, in the decisions he, he, he makes, but I like that we also see that he makes some mistakes and he takes some calculated risks. And we kind of see that in the, in the next skirmish, which, um, uh, which we'll get to in a bit, but, um, I, the sequence was just so cool. I think that I was, um, I, I can really gush about this sequence, the, the whole rest of the podcast, but oh, I think we've talked about it enough. Um, I, it, this is the kind of craft in, in writing that I think that, um, Jake's deserves a lot more praise than he gets because the, th this whole situation and how it unfolds and the intuition that we see with these different characters and how they work together is, is so so amazing i also forgot that jab jabez is here the whole time too like he's in this crew as well um we have quite a, a few shrews and we see some shrews die in this skirmish too but um there's a huge party to keep track of and i think jakes does a pretty good job with it yeah yeah i agree i i could probably use a little bit more jabez uh because i sometimes i forget he's there i'm like oh yeah jabez <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm the same way with Cheek, like whenever and then Cheek talks and then you're just like, OK, yeah, Cheek's still here. <laughs> I think Cheek <laughs> I, had I didn't. Moments. Yeah. Yeah. Well, chapter 31, Stonefleck gathers a massive army to confront Matthias, even as Slagar moves to travel further with his line of slaves. Matthias and Orlando build a raft with the help of Logalog and make to cross the river, separating them from Slagar's troop. Back at the Abbey, Abbot Mordalfus parlays with General Ironbeak about Ironbeak's prisoners, shrewdly bargaining for two extra days of preparation before the Abbey surrenders. Yeah, so lots, lots to unpack here. Um, the first note that I have is, I mean, they're, they're kind of out, out of the the frying pan right into the fire with this mounting army that's just across the riverbank is kind of how I understood it. But we see something really crafty happening where Orlando and Matthias are just like cleaving down trees that are kind of uh, stagnant against the, the riverbank in order to craft this raft, this raft. And they know that this skirmish is going to happen, but they have a, a very clear obstacle that's right in front of them that they just jump right into it. So I, I thought, again, this is a really cool moment that I, I think it's cool to see how they're working well together, but then also like they don't really have a plan, right? <laughs> like their plan is just to get across the river. Um, they don't know that the army's actually in wait, but they, they know that there's going to be something on the other side of the river. Like they know that they wouldn't just be left to their, on their own, you know, like, 
they know that there's something that's going to happen. Something, something will happen. Yeah. I get a sense of anxiety over this part of the book, uh, because I know, I know that this confrontation is going to get ugly. And right. I think Jake's has established that nobody's really safe. You know, I, we can talk about plot armor and, and who gets it and who doesn't and who we're absolutely sure is going to make it to the end. But he's stopped us <laughs> cold with some some character deaths already, you know, killing off uh, Friar Hugo for me, I thought was a huge, a, a bold um, risk, you know, killing off uh, Rollo's mom. It, it There's a kind of sentimentality to, you know, the characters that he kind of kills off. And there is a genuine sense of, you know, maybe not Matthias or maybe not Orlando, but I do think that it's possible like a Basil stag hair could go, you know, or like, don't you dare say it, you know, don't you dare say it. (laughs) I'm not saying that it's going to happen. I'm just saying that, you know, like there's always that possibility in this world. And so knowing that there is an army waiting for them after they cross this river, uh, I think definitely heightens a lot of the tension of like oh no i you know <laughs> don't do me like that i'm really afraid of seeing who's gonna come out the other side of this battle yeah this isn't something we had really planned on talking about but there are characters i am genuinely afraid of losing in this book and jess and basil are top of the list <laughs> like yeah. i I it'll be a hard day if that happens uh, again if you've been listening to the podcast you know that I have not read this series so I don't know <laughs> if it happens um, but yeah I, I and Chico's kind of on that list like I, I kind of thought I really didn't think he was he I, I was surprised that Jake's was about to kill him off and I but then I also was just like oh dang you know Jake's is ruthless he, he, he'll do it he, he'll go for it <laughs> um, three characters I'm not worried about though are uh mrs church mouse rollo and um cornflower this whole subplot of the you know we've got prisoners and we uh we want to parlay um i know that there's going to be an escape from that and so there seems like there's a lot less tension with this i don't know your feelings on it but it also seems so desperate of general Ironbeak to do right it, I... it seems so desperate of him to be doing it this way I think so. I think, though, what stands out to me is that this is a great opportunity to kind of show why Abbot Mordalfus does deserve to wear the the habit yeah. of Abbot. You know, um, yeah. he's very shrewd at talking through, you know, with with General Ironbeak and kind of maneuvering him like, you know, go ahead. If you're going to do it, you're going to do it. But I can't. I can't do anything without consensus. You know, that's that's who we are. That's how we roll. We need the consensus. It's a brilliant play on his end, too, because it buys him the yeah. time needed in order for them to be able to come up with a plan. Yeah. Um, you're you're pointing out something that I, I think that I've had a real blind eye, and that's um, Mordalphus, because I, I do think that he stands out. Um, he stands out a lot in this in this sequence. Um, yeah. In the last few chapters, too. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, I I think we're seeing more and more why he 
earned his place. You know, like why the previous abbot, Abbot Mortimer, you know, why Mortimer was was so uh, keen to give it over to Mordalphus. Because I think Mordalphus is a much more capable leader than he's given credit for. You know, like like as we see these peaceable creatures, um, you know, so like in quotation marks, peaceable creatures um, prove themselves more and more competent as time goes on. I think this is just a cool move by Mordalphus. Like he he has the charisma to pull it off. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, before we get to chapter um, thirty-two, let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back to it. All right, now that we're back, let's jump into chapter thirty-two. In chapter 32, as Matthias's party approaches the far bank of the river, Stoneflex army launches a surprise attack that takes the life of many of their Gaussim accompaniment. Stoneflex presses his advantage, but Matthias and company barely escape. As Matthias is swept, swept off downstream with his companions, Back at Redwall, Abbot Mordalphus and the other Redwallers plot to capture General Ironbeak's magpies, therefore stopping his supply chain. Cornflower and Mrs. Churchmouse, in custody, resolve not to let their fate dishearten them. So I have, I have just have a few notes in this chapter because, again, it's like kind of the setting of the stage. This um, trap that's been sprung of Stonefleck and all of his camouflage rats completely catches Matthias and co off guard and they jump um, basically on the side of the raft. Now one, one kind of, I don't know if this is really a plot point to this, but before they get into the river, cheek is like, I don't want to be in that river. I know I'm an otter and I'm supposed to be good at this, (laughs) but he's very adamant to say like, I don't want to be in the water because the, the, the river water is moving faster than anything I'm used to. I kind of take this as like adolescent nerves. Right. Like, yes, he's like, mm-hmm. I've never done anything like this before. I'm kind of weary about it. Matthias is like, it'll be fine. You know, like we need to get in there. But then when the attack is sprung, we see that shrews are getting like arrows between the eyes. Um, there's a, <laughs> a a swarm of small fish that are like kind of nibbling at um, Matthias and co on the raft. And Cheek has been immobilized out of fear on the raft right like he's so afraid to get up to get off um and matthias is telling him like cheek you have to get off and you need to get into the water or else you're gonna get hit by an arrow like you're gonna you are you're such a big target on the raft and is also keeping them from being able to move the raft quick enough in order to get away from stonefleck and the ferry right he's kind of taking a ferry out to try to um, board this makeshift makeshift craft uh, vessel that yeah or raft this crafted raft that they have. Yeah. Um, anyways, I think that this sequence is really interesting because um, I think that it kind of it, it's a good character moment for Cheek because then he jumps into the water and he starts eating the fish and Stoneflake is like, well, crap! Now that the otter's in the water, all the fish are going to leave because mm-hmm. they don't want to you know be a, a snack for this otter. Do you think Matthias knew that was going to happen? Do you think that he knew that that Cheek had to be in the water for the fish? Or do you think this is purely circumstance? I think it's pure circumstance. I mean, it's a great 
character moment for Cheek. You know, I th- I thought it was like, oh, this is really funny and ironic that <laughs> the otter doesn't want to get in the water because he's afraid yeah. of it. Um, but I I think that basically it's it's just like once Cheek kind of figures out that he can confront this fear, um, that he's much more capable than he thinks of himself. It's like a turning point for Cheek. Um, I think this yeah. is really the moment when Cheek joins the party. Um, it seems to me like the, the turning point for him to really be one of the Red Wallers. And it's funny, too, because as soon as he's in the water, he's like, oh, yeah, this is great. And these fish are delicious. Like, had I known that it wasn't scary <laughs> and, you know, that, that there were snacks down here, I would have been hanging out the whole time. Yeah, I love that Matthias is like, Cheek, did you bring in a snack with you into the water? And he's like, no, I just started eating the fish that were like, you know, <laughs> at our feet. Um, it's so it's so funny. And he just like gets into the water and starts cutting through it. And I think it's important to note that they only get away from the, the boarding from the ferry um, because Cheek kind of doubles under the raft and you mm-hmm. and starts swimming the raft away. Like he kind of is the the linchpin for this whole escaped yeah. to actually work um he's kind of the motor and it's great that what what finally moves him to action is orlando just getting fed up with him oh <laughs> yeah orlando just again he he's like i don't have time for these games he takes the butt of his axe and and sweeps cheek off the raft into the water <laughs> yeah. which i think is really funny yeah oh. um this is this should be no counter for this uh for this up this episode is just how many times um orlando gets so fed up with the situation that he just results in his using his axe (laughs) we're up to two now which you know isn't a lot but it's still right you know i do i do love orlando's just (laughs) i don't have time for this nonsense you know um i also think another Sorry, real quick. Another really cool Orlando moment is he gets shot in the paw by oh, one yeah. of the the rats, um, Stoneflex rats, and he bites it off. And he's like, "Man, this is so annoying." I'm like, "Holy cow, this is that's crazy." Purely because, I mean, we see how deadly these archers are that they're picking off shrews left and right. Some shrews just would, you know, drift away from the raft, and then they get plunked and be a floating corpse in the river. Like, yeah. It's incredibly deadly, and to see how um, uh, formidable Orlando is, he sees it as a nuisance. Yeah. Um, I do love how Cheek seems to be just a like a Basil 0.75 or something. Like, he's so like Basil. He is. I think he's more annoying than Basil, but I think you're right. They, they have the same kind of Golden Retriever type energy, for sure. <laughs> Yeah, I don't. I, I I will never get annoyed with Cheek. I I just think he's absolutely hilarious, and I think his camaraderie with Basil and just I don't know the way that he reacts to his situation is so very much like Basil. Um, it, I don't know. It, it's just a fun. It's a fun little pairing in the middle of what is otherwise an absolutely kind of terrifying fight. Right? Isn't this fight? I I, I kind of feel. Uh, we'll get to the bigger sequence, and I want you to take the bigger sequence. Um, and we'll get to that. But I just feel like this um crew 
is so much more formidable than a lot of the crews that we've seen in the past, like in, in Moss Flower and uh, in Redwall. In a, in a way, yeah. But as we'll kind of come to find, I, I think I still feel like they're an underdog the whole way. You know, like they're they're always just on the brink of kind of getting annihilated. Um, but But we'll talk about that as we come to the next kind of section. So in chapter 33, on the other side of the bank, Matthias and company are still pursued by Stonefleck. Stonefleck manages a flank attack that kills more shrews, but Matthias and Orlando mount a counterattack. Badly outnumbered, Matthias and company prepare for their last stand against Stonefleck, but are bolstered at the last moment by Warbeak's Sparrow Warriors, who arrive just in time to fight. Back at Redwall, Constance captures Ironbeak's magpie ravage, or foragers and leverages a hostage exchange. Yeah, do you want to start I, with this one? I think one? I want to also include chapter 34, and then we can circle back. Let's do it. Fight. So in chapter 34, the battle continues raging in the southern lands as Matthias and Warbeak's forces combine to confront Stonefleck. Heavy losses occur on both sides until Logalog slays Stonefleck with a sword throw. In the aftermath of the battle, Matthias finds Warbeak among the slain. The sparrows deliver Redwall's prophecy to Matthias, who sets his sights on the next leg of their journey south. So this battle is kind of wild um, because we Matthias and his company have been harried basically since the start. They've been, um, you know, kind of thrown off course and then they got trapped by Slagar and then they were attacked by the Painted Ones. And now Stonefleck has shown up with this crazy army of archers that have Matthias and company completely outnumbered um the fight between the first kind of skirmish where matthias is basically like all right we've landed the raft we can circle back and if we circle back we'll actually be able to kind of get the jump on them as long as they don't know where we are but then they find out that stoneflex scouts have already spotted them and so matthias is like all right Orlando, you and me, we're going to go. Everybody else, you stick to the plan. We're going to try to create a diversion and at least let you guys continue to move forward. We'll catch up with you. And Stonefleck, as an enemy general, kind of figures out, I think I know what they're going to do. And if we break our force off, we can actually outflank them. And then we've got them dead to rights. And yeah, it's so, kind of like a pincer maneuver that they try to do. Yeah, right? They try to come in from two two fronts. There's a competency to Stonefleck that I think is absolutely scary. You know, if this were Sarmina, she would not she would not have, you know, thought this out. She would not have outthought this. Um, I think that Clooney may have been able to to figure out the ruse, but Stonefleck is really formidable as an enemy. And so even though Matthias and Orlando absolutely wreak havoc, you get them within striking distance of anything and you're not going to be able to stop the two of them. Um, but Stonefleck is cleverer than that. And he manages to 
absolutely kind of bring them to their last their last stand. Um, and Matthias and Orlando both, when they reunite with the main party, they kind of realize like really wish this could have gone gone down differently. Wish um, we wouldn't have to make a a, a, a fight here. Um, but it looks like this is it. Like we we either come through this on the other side, or this is going to be our last stand. Um, yeah, Matthias is upset with um, with Basil and Jess when Orlando and Matthias catch back up with the court group, and they have not doubled their efforts to try to basically get around Stonefleck um, and his forces. He uh, kind of like scolds them and he's like what do you 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 needed to push forward for this plan to work and they're like no no, no we wanted to come back and save you and he was like but that's he, he he's like that's not the that wasn't the plan yeah. again this is another good moment of matthias where i just feel like he's thinking you know he's playing 2d chess or 3d chess a little bit you know like he's yeah. thinking a lot further ahead and he he probably knows that stonefleck is thinking that too right yeah and so like the concern shouldn't be Matthias and Orlando. It should be um, their positioning. You know, they're they're uh, my understanding is that they're kind of on the beach, right? Like they don't, they don't have any good cover from these archers that they're having to like kind of double their efforts yeah. to get around. The whole point was to try to get into more of the forested area yeah. a little bit further past the beach because, and away from the rocks. Yeah. Then they have the cover and, um, yeah, so that was the plan. And like Matthias is like <laughs> Orlando and I have got this. You know, like we we will be able to make it back to you. Um that's not the concern. The concern is the the rest of you, you know. Cuz it's not just Logalog and Jabez and Basil Staghair and Cheek and Jess. They got a whole bunch of shrews too that are part of this party. And so like and the shoes are dropping fast. I, they I mean, are fast. Yeah. <laughs> I noticed, I noted that too, where I was like, man, we have shrews dropping left and right here. Like there's, there really is a lot of casualties that are happening in this battle. I don't even know if we can call it a skirmish anymore. Like this is just a full, yeah. full on battle. <laughs> yeah. Army versus army. Yeah. When yeah. It comes down to it. Um, yeah. I, th I think you're right. It's like, Matthias is disappointed because he's like, we, we probably could have done more, you know, like we, if you had continued further, we, we may have been able to, to stave off this fight. Um, but now that you've wanted to make, you know, you've made this a last stand. So this is it. Like we got to put, yeah, I guess we have to do the line. last stand. Yeah. <laughs> I guess we yeah. got to do it all together. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of efforts from everyone there. Even Jabez is in the throes of this fight, too. You know, yeah. like we see that this is, I don't want to say a desperate fight, but um, I love what you said about Stonefleck because I really think that he is a lot more formidable than he's not just like a, he, I, he also just doesn't have any motivation that is his downfall. Like with Sarmenia mm -hmm. brought up a good point. Like she had her, her temper and her temper would cause her to just make these really bad decisions. Um, with Clooney, we had, you know, his kind of pride, his, um, his, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, uh, he would kind of, uh, he was so self-assured, you yeah. know, of, of his Arrogance. forces. Yeah. Arrogance. Yeah. There we go. That's way better than my word. Um, but with, Stoneflake, we just see that he's like just good. He's like a good fighter yeah. and like a good commander, and that's kind of what he is. Um, yeah, 
Yeah, there's a competency that just makes him really scary. There's a moment that I love. It's so cinematic where they've they're kind of low on stones and like Jess who is an archer slash uh, a slinger, you know, she's not necessarily a frontline kind of uh fighter. You know, she's like uh I'm out of stones, you know, like what about you and he's like I'm <laughs> I'm not going to be able to replenish here. And she says, um, you know, I, I really don't want to die so far from home. Um, and <laughs> there's this, yeah, I don't know, just this sense of, of uh, impending doom. And then all of a sudden they get the reinforcements from Warbeak. Um, and I had been expecting Warbeak for a while um, to show up to, to kind of like help them out. But what, deliberate timing you know call it a deus ex machina if you want to but the addition of the sparrows from Redwall really turned the tide and then we get to see matthias and orlando do their thing we get to see this the shrews kind of rally i love that it is not matthias or orlando or even basil staghair who takes down um stonefleck it is logalog <laughs> yeah such a, i loved that detail too with a sword a throw with the um <laughs> the ja- a sword jab with <laughs> sword throw uh yeah. yeah yeah that's crazy i i and going back to warbeak i i knew that she was going to show up at one point too the sparrows are going to show up at, at one point however um i jokingly texted you that the eagles are coming when i was reading this scene because (laughs) um i was like this is just straight out of um return of king right but i think that there's something that is the the key difference is that we know that the sparrows are um you know they're they're i don't want to they're warriors i guess like they're they're um they kind of come in and they fight but we also know that they're like pretty small in number too. like the the mm-hmm. the casualties that they take um was no surprise in my mind like i, I saw this um however i did not see warbeak dying this puts me in extreme fear of basil and jess like, <laughs> because this she's she's from the first book right yeah there she plays such a big part in matthias's story in Redwall. I really thought that the plot armor was thick enough for her. And I was, I think this might be the, the biggest um, devastating death for me in Redwall. I, I really did not see this coming. I was shocked. Uh, I, I <laughs> again, I have almost no memory of anything else in this book from this point forward. I, I think I know one additional detail that's at the very end of the book that I'm not going to spoil, but yeah, I, I did not see this coming uh, at all. And, 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 and as soon as, as as soon as it happened, I was like, I, I, man, what a blow, you know, like to have, to have a character that, like you say, was so intrinsic to the plot of the first book and and like a beloved character too you know we got to really know warbeak we got to know her story and we know she is like a core member of redwall at this point like she is part of this redwall alliance and to see that sacrifice is just super tough to swallow 
Yeah, I, I really think that's why, I mean, the, it, Jake's is trying to create an impact here with the sacrifice that the Sparrows did jumping into this fray, kind of knowing that they're a little bit outclassed and outsized for, you know, these deadly archers that are part of Stoneflux crew. Um, so the impact is definitely there. Um, I, I can't help but dislike this so much purely because I don't really know why this whole plot with the delivering of the message like i i don't we have the whole last book to read um so there's a lot of ground to cover but as as we stand right now i just don't know how this serves the overall plot so it's kind of it makes me mad because it seems like um uh what's it what's the term it's like fridging it just seems like we kind of (laughs) fridge (laughs) matthias a little bit with this death i don't know maybe that's not true i mean we have a lot to go but um, I, I do I'm probably just sour too, because I, this one, this one's stinks. Yeah. I, I do think that there is a place for the kind of lore building or the, the world building that we're getting here. The, the way that I've worked out what I think, um, this prophecy is really leading into, like, I think it's going to be really interesting to talk about when we finish book three. Yeah. Maybe we should table it till then but yeah i it's a hot take that i really haven't had a lot of time to develop so um. (laughs) you know i i I agree with you um seeing warbeak dead is just a man it is a it is a a demoralizing blow for sure um i i do think we've not talked very much at all about uh general iron beak but but uh, chapter 35 is probably a good place to revisit this secondary storyline that's going on. So in chapter 35, the prisoner exchange occurs between the Red Wallers and General Ironbeak. But although the hostages are transferred peacefully, Ironbeak's forces conquer more of the Abbey, leaving the Red Wallers trapped in Cavern Hole. Far to the south, Slagar leads Matameo and the other slaves to a bottomless abyss. They carefully cross via a rope bridge, which Slagar then destroys to prevent Matthias from catching up. Yeah, we've been talking so much about Matthias and the great battle. The uh, what is it? The the battle, of the bulge on the beach there. Um, <laughs> that we uh, we really haven't talked much about General Ironbeak. Um, I, so the, this whole plot that's an unfolding of being able to cut off the supply line um, and then do this uh, exchange, right? They're going to take three magpies and they're going to trade those three magpies for um, the red wallers that have been captured. Um, the, the biggest thing that stood out to me in this is the conversation between General Ironbeak, uh, Abbot Mordalfus, and Constance who mm-hmm. Constance is absolutely brutal in this um, this chapter because she has absolutely no um, disregard for drowning these magpies, um, and we see her kind of use use General Ironbeak's I don't even know what you call it his um, affinity to these magpies as the main leverage in order to um 
get back the red wallers i mean that's that's really what she does she starts drowning them in the lake because she's like yeah i don't really like your answers so she starts drowning them and then they're like crying out for general iron beak and he's like yeah maybe we can figure something out and she's just like well they're already drowning so you better go fast like it's <laughs> crazy to see her attitude towards this um i i i, I see I see Constance as like the chaotic good character, you know, like yes, there are no yeah. rules when it comes to doing <laughs> like, like, like protecting what is good or what is righteous, you know? I also just keep feeling, I keep thinking that Constance is really old too. Um, and could, you know, that she's described as like the country bumpkin by Clooney and, you know, like there's a mm -hmm. lot to say that like, you know, as a badger, she really isn't all that fierce. However, everyone's terrified of her. <laughs> the fact oh, that yeah. that this is happening. I mean, she clobbered the the uh the Corvids earlier. Like there's so much that's happening with, you know, her her being the muscle for this. And then afterwards, um, I think it's Mordalphus says to her, like, you know, that was a good play to do that. And she was just like, Oh, I would have drowned them. I would have drowned them for real. <laughs> this wasn't a play, which is just the absolutely brutal for her. um we also get another little detail of john church mouse mr church mouse um biting his lips so hard that blood trickles to his chin in this exchange yeah he, um he's so worried for his wife yeah i read that line and i was kind of like dang jakes that's a that's a very uh morbid <laughs> uh <laughs> prose for sure yeah, and he, he does that. Remind me, it's been a while since I read this chapter, but he does that because he, um, General Ironbeak is then also dangling um, Mrs. Church Mouse and Rolo and uh, Cornflower from the very peaks of the Abbey, right? They're kind of in this, this equivalent exchange type um, standoff where they're basically threatening each other's hostages yeah yeah it's it's pretty intense um i love that the the red wallers come up with this ploy and then iron beak kind of sees them and 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 like soul reads them a little bit and so when he does the hostage exchange he's like thank you i've also taken the rest of the abbey in the time that we were talking here yeah um, he kind of turns the tables on him a little bit because he says you know you're yeah. so focused on thinking that i'm gonna do something to you you haven't realized that i've taken over more of the abbey and yeah. i've taken over the orchard um because you guys weren't looking there so my supply lines are now confirmed you know right. or or secured i guess is a better way to say it yeah um it's very clever to see this happening um and i really don't think that the the um red wallers at this point have any kind of upper hand like they they kind of yeah. are getting outplayed around every corner although they are clever um we're seeing that there there's kind of a, a, ch a changing of the guard if you will with um th their securities within Redwall. yeah yeah he he's just a i don't know he's a shrewder invader i think than like you know even Clooney was um and i think this is what for me makes him so much more compelling as a villain uh, at this point in the story. Like I, I just, I feel like I've been hooked into the general Ironbeak storyline a little bit more and more. 
as I see how deliberate a villain he kind of is, you know, I, I 100% agree. Yeah, I think that um, he what he lacks in um, muscle, I guess, like he's he's not as aggressive as Clooney or he's not as hot headed as um, uh, who am I thinking of? Sarmina. I get, uh, yeah, Sarmina. We also see that he's um, he's not as um, like formidable as like Asmodeus, right? Like or mindless as mm-hmm. Asmodeus yeah. or as dumb as Aguilar. <laughs> All these side characters that we get. Um, but he really is a good foil for the Redwall crew. I mean, they they really are foiled left and right. And we know that they have a little ace up their sleeves, which uh, uh, more 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 like a ace in the hole, I guess, <laughs> which we learned about. <laughs> in the next chapter yeah chapter 36 the corvids have abbey dwellers trapped in cavern hole but formal comes up with a plan to tunnel underneath the abbey to find freedom meanwhile matthias is joined again by sir harry in the southern desert just before they arrive at the impassable abyss Ugh, the Sir Harry, this is where I was like, he's back again. Oh, man, this guy's <laughs> guy back. Um, I, I really only have one note here, and it's a Basil note. You know, I love my Basil notes. Uh, he Basil is they kind of have this exchange of, with Sir Harry where he's like, well, I came back here because I was lonely. I wanted to see you guys. <laughs> right. I saw that you were kind of in trouble with these buzzards. So I just wanted to come and help you out. And he's like, you know, if you have a spot for me back in Redwall, I'll help you out if you can if you can find a spot for me. And um, the the rest of Matthias and, and Co are like, yeah, that sounds good. You know, we could really use your help. They're very welcoming, but Basil is so concerned that his food is going to be <laughs> gobbled up by Sir Harry rather than him getting you know first dibs on the salad that he's fuming about it i don't really think we've seen basil be this distressed in any of our interactions it's such a great detail i i loved it so much i i i want to see way more of sir harry purely because of how much um the the kind of uh character friction that basil has with him i man i absolutely love basil as a character he may actually be my favorite character of the whole book um i mean orlando's pretty pretty up there for me but yeah uh the the friction between sir harry and then basil realizing like oh no this guy's (laughs) this guy's appetite is unsustainable as if basil (laughs) himself isn't the unsustainable appetite right like yeah everybody knows that that's why it's so funny because Basil is treating Sir Harry like everyone treats Basil. Like yeah. <laughs> Fire Hugo was so stressed out when Basil was around because of his infinite appetite. And the fact that Sir Harry also is has an infinite appetite, um, Basil is threatened by it. It's such a good uh, applaud to Jake's for this character development because uh, the tension based around food is just a hilarious um it's 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 hilarious. Yeah, I love it. It's it's great. In our last chapter, chapter 37, as the moles find fresh water through their efforts at tunneling, General Ironbeak and his corvids have rooted in the infirmary. Manga's Ironbeak's right wing 
still cannot see the future through his visions of a mouse in armor. He suggests to Ironbeak that they steal the Martin tapestry to provide a battle with the Red Wallers. Oh, boy. I mean, don't mess with the tapestry. We've learned this before. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was when I read this, I was like, you know, they need to put that tapestry in a place that's going to be, you know, not mess with. Um, But I guess that kind of defeats the purpose of having the tapestry. I this is where I'm really curious in the in book three, what we're going to if we're going to learn anything about the soft magic and the tapestry, we said earlier, I think that the magic is coming from the spirit of Martin that's in this tapestry. If you mess with the tapestry, you mess with Martin. Um, I'm very curious to see how this resolves. I, I think this is a good setup mm-hmm. for the next part, which is Malchorus. But um, yeah, it, we, we know that's not going to end well. Don't mess with the tapestry. Rule right. number one in Redwall, don't mess with the tapestry. Right. <laughs> don't don't diss don't do that warrior mouse. Like he'll mess yeah. you up. Martin, yeah. his beloved, do not mess with Martin. Yeah. Um, I man, I what more to say about book two? Um, other than that I felt like for as compact as this one is, because it's it is much shorter than part one and part three. Um, well, you say that only because I think we are a little spoiled with uh, Moss Flower, which had huge parts. I mean, those episodes <laughs> are like two, three hours. We're, we're, I feel like we have so much time on our hands now to talk about right. other things because the sections right. are so long. Yeah, I, I will say like as short as this section feels, it just there's so much work in here. And I feel like this is the core of of kind of like the action i feel like it really picks up its stride in here um and there were a couple of sequences especially the fight with stonefleck that just stand out as like these are the most cinematic movie or moments of the book um just like really action-packed and the stakes feel really well established i could have used a little bit more matameo in this portion but i think that matameo's time is coming i I feel like we'll get a lot more of that with malchoris well with this being such a a short section we really don't have a very big list of most memorable side characters or vermin uh but as always we have to cover those that that show up uh trevor do you want to take us through the side characters yeah the only real side character that we get in book two is sir harry the muse (laughs) he's kind of (laughs) de facto the only new character that we're introduced to so he's obviously kind of the winner but i do want to revisit some of our previous characters because it's not super often that we get recurring characters in this series so i wanted to pose the question of Aside from Sir Harry the Muse, who is a standout character for you? Like, do you feel like there's someone from the returning cast, either from earlier in the book that we get a little bit more of in book two? Or do you feel like there's even a character of the recurring cast from the previous book that sticks out to you like you really enjoyed their role more in book two? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, obviously, Sir Harry wins by default because he's the only one that we really meet. 
Um, that that's a new character. I guess you could. And we haven't really met her in this book, but we see a lot more of Sister May. Um, she takes on a bigger role in mm. this that we didn't really see in the previous book. Uh, but to answer your question, I think it's got to be Logalog. He takes on so much more of a role in this section than we even saw in the whole first Redwall book. Yeah. Um, he's we see that he's way more formidable of a, a fighter. Um, he's the one that slays um, Stonefleck, too. You know, like there's mm-hmm. so much more log log in this um, that he, he's definitely grown on my list of characters, like standout characters, too. Um, so, yeah, m- I think my answer would be log log. I'm actually inclined to agree with you. I, I, I feel like I always go back and forth between like, I don't know, is it Orlando? Cause Orlando is so fun. And every time I see him, I, I just really get a thrill out of more Orlando. Um, I really feel like I would read an entire book. That's just Orlando's backstory, <laughs> but yeah. I, I think, I, I think you're right. I mean, Logalog is such a compelling figure in this second part of the book he has such a bigger role and we get much more a sense of like why he is the leader of the gaussum um like why we should kind of confide in him he's such a different character than he was in that first book you know i felt like he was maybe a little bit more weaker willed in that first book it felt like he just didn't have as strong a presence. And here we really get to see much more of like what makes the Gaussum as a whole so interesting a faction and why is Logalog the most qualified leader for the Gaussum? Yeah, it definitely answers that question a lot more too, like why he is the Logalog, which um, I guess we kind of learned that Logalog is then is like a, a passed on name, right? Like it's not... Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with with Orlando. I mean, this is the Books and Badgers podcast, so we love our Badgers here on the show. <laughs> but um, I, I think that in terms of the leveling up that we see from some re- some recurring characters, Loglog's definitely there. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, I think that it would do a little disservice not to talk about Warbeak being, you know, her kind of sacrifice with that. Um, I just, I do wish we saw way more of her in this book though. Um, I think if you listen back to our first episode for this season, I think we mentioned that too. Like, it's just cool to see, you know, Warbeak back in this, in this. So uh, it's, it's a bummer because I wish we would have seen more of her in this um, post Redwall series or, or, you know, um, this post Redwall I don't know, um, storytelling, but yeah, uh, that one, that one definitely deserves a good mention. Yeah. Rip Warbeak. Um, pour one out for Warbeak. What a a blow. I, I, I love Warbeak so much. It really is just like, I mean, at the very least she went out fighting for Redwall, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like turning to Matthias's aid, um is just such a hero move for sure um so i i can't get so upset because it's not like she died in like a weak way you know it's not like general Ironbeak just comes in and kills her off <laughs> like she dies fighting and she dies not just fighting for anything she dies defending one of her fiercest friends the one that reintegrated the entire spara society you know into red wall yeah you're totally right yeah yeah 
Yeah. So if you have a, a, a cover bowl of uh, candy chestnuts to pour out for Warbeak, um, now's the time to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, our most memorable vermin this time, there are three, what, what I think are really three major kind of vermin characters, uh, and those would be Scan, General Ironbeak, and Stonefleck. Yeah, another short list. I feel like this is a long, long book, uh, this this book too, but uh, I guess it's <laughs> shorter in, in, in uh, practice than it is in imag- my imagination. Uh, with this list, I think I got to go. I, my heart wants to go with scan because <laughs> that whole, I mean, he's only on, on in the book for like two chapters. Um, yeah. but that is such a big twist within this, the kind of storytelling, um, the familiar storytelling that we've seen with Jake so far mm-hmm. that it, it just completely caught me off guard. Like the, the twist of the betrayal and, and the uh, absolute grotesque way that he dies um, mm. with the painted ones. Um, I think that he's the most memorable. I really do think that he's most memorable. So um, I'm going to go. I, I'm changing my answer as I'm talking. I'm going to go with scan. Yeah. Well, I, I, I can buy it. I mean, he he plays against trope, right? And um, I think that's so bold for Jake's to do uh, to introduce this kind of wrinkle of like, you know, there there are uh, good and bad creatures, and he he kind of breaks that mold with Scan a bit. Um, yeah, I I, I, could, I could totally buy that. For me, it's Stonefleck. I just I just love this, you know, very competent general. I, he brings so much tension through the whole of this second book. Um, he's just a, a menace through and through. And I, I love that it changes kind of the stakes for the characters. So for me, um, I just, I really feel like I love the stakes that Stonefleck introduces to the book. So, um, I think that will probably stick with me a little bit longer, but I do think scan stands out in the field of, you know, kind of this, um, turncoat style character. You know, I think it, it's important to point out that we're talking about two characters. This whole book is named General Ironbeak, and we're not even really tossing him a bone <laughs> at all. Like, I just, I think that there's so many other compelling villains in, or vermin um, in this book that, you know, he, he doesn't really deserve the mention, I suppose. But I do think he's an interesting character, and I, I hope that when we do our big review episode that we'll be able to kind of talk about his role in this. Mm-hmm. Um, Jake knows how to write some good villains, though. He really does. Yes. <laughs> he, he, he writes I, some some good ones. I think it's great that, um, I mean, we're, we have so many. We, we, we got a whole third of the book left to go. <laughs> You know, like we're not even done. Um, And yet I feel like we've got some fantastic characters in here. Um, I love Slagar. And I I just think it's so fascinating that we get such a strong first third with Slagar. And then this second book is like introducing new characters that we shouldn't really connect with. And yet they provide so much tension for the rest of the narrative. Yeah, and they have their own their own kind of roles too. Like we we really haven't talked about Slagar too much in this because he his 
he he does take a, a back seat to a lot of these other things that are going on for sure yeah yeah i'm really excited for uh for part three or book three uh as we get over to malchris um as always this has been just so much fun talking about this i at every book that we finish uh i think i've said this um uh, either via text or, or to you that I just am enjoying this, this series more and more. <laughs> uh, good thing we decided to do a podcast on it, right? Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I totally agree. It's, it's such a blast from the past. Like uh, anytime I sit down, I'm like, yeah, okay, it's Redwall. And then I find myself utterly engrossed. And I'm like, yeah. how, what is the magic of of this world or whatever that just sucks me back in every time I crack open the book? Yeah, it's very comfortable. I I, I, I got to say it's a very comfortable, even though we're doing this for the podcast, it's just a very comfortable read. Um, and mm-hmm. it's something that I, I do enjoy that. And in each, as we get further into these books and as we get from part one to part two, you know, book one to book two, um, I just, it, it, it gets even more compelling. This world gets even more compelling. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I'm really excited for this next part. Um, so if you're still with us, hopefully you are, uh, uh, you can join us in, um, episode three, that's going to be part or book three, Malchris, that will be in that, our next episode. And then, uh, I've got so many notes for a review episode. I always, you know, each episode we get closer to that review episode and, it just gets me really excited. Um, so if you want to support the show, um, the best way you can do that is to leave us a review um, wherever you're listening to this. So if that's in Apple, iTunes, or uh, Google Podcasts, or whatever it is, um, leaving us a review just helps us be able to become more visible within the godforsaken algorithm that runs podcasts. <laughs> so we really appreciate that. Um, you can also find us on Instagram and threads at Books in Badgers. Um, that's with an N books in badgers uh if you have questions for us you can go ahead and message us those questions on those uh, respective social media channels or you can also email us at books badgers at gmail.com uh, that's books and badgers at gmail.com uh, and then uh, if you are, are a fan of horror uh, you're reading this book and you just you know the the painted ones are just kind of not quite scratching that horror itch for you. You want a little bit more of that. Uh, be sure to check out uh, Trevor's Got a Podcast uh, of Slay House Presents. Um, you're always roll. I'm, I'm constantly surprised at the number uh, and the, the incredible caliber of guests that you have on your show. <laughs> I don't know it's how wild. to leverage that here, but it's, <laughs> it is incredible. Yeah. Uh, I just listened to your, your most recent interview and it's, it's a really good one. So um, be sure to go over to his podcast and check it out there. All right. Well, that will conclude episode two of season three general iron beak the character we didn't talk about as much as some of these other characters which is ironic but uh thanks for joining us and we'll see you in the next episode bye